We've been systematically teaching on divine judgment because with this whole corona COVID thing, that seems to be the flavor of interest for today. Did God do this? Is this the judgment of God? What, what does judgment look like? We've had a lot of questions on this subject, so I've never thoroughly studied it. I've only developed flavors and aromas of it as I've read the totality of the scripture. So to go back and dig in is, is helping us to mine out some stuff and do a theological study of this. So that's what we're looking at. So that brings us to lesson three, self-judgment, because in our spectrum of judgment, this is where we begin. We begin with self-judgment, at least we ought to. And really, even the pagans teach their kids this. They, in manners, how do you feel? How do you think that made your sister feel? Well, next time, think better before you say that. What we're doing is teaching our kids self-judgment. Even pagans do this. It seems to be the modern church that's so highly allergic to any form of judgment, and that can't be our allergy at all. All right. As you may recall from our first lesson, uh, judgment is a foundational and necessary doctrine of Christianity. And I, I think I prophesied or told you a couple years ago, I read an article and I said, church, you need to get ready to hear more of this term. And the term was called biblical Christianity. Because we're having to use that term now to distinguish it from all the other flavors of Christianity. And we're dealing with church doctrines and flavors and denominations now that are so allergic to judgment, we got to come back to biblical Christianity, which is all about judgment. If you remember our first lesson, we showed you just the cognates of the, the Greek word krino alone, not to mention the 20 or 30 synonyms in the rest of the Greek New Testament. Even the word to, a, to answer in the Greek, the word to answer is rooted in the word judge. In the Greek language, to answer, used hundreds of times in the New Testament, because before you answer, you have to judge. How do I, how do I, your doctor asks you, how do you feel? What hurts? You have to judge and then answer. And if you don't judge before you answer, you might answer with a lie. Therefore, to obey the Ten Commandments, you have to be judgy. Thou shalt not lie. Well, I got to be honest, which means I got to judge. But again, I think we see how we've gotten so allergic to any kind of judgment, any kind of criticism. I, my wife was sharing with me some kind of homeschool meme during all this corona thing that um, some parent went to the teacher and said, the, teacher, the, the, the parent who's having to homeschool now that the schools are shut down, they went to the teacher and they said, you lied to me. The teacher said, what? You told me my kids were awesome. Is that not the truth? They, you said they deserve trophies. They don't deserve trophies. I just, I believe in spanking all of a sudden. <laughs> However, we said judgment is a foundational necessary doctrine of Christianity. Don't forget, not all judgment is negative or destructive. So we have to find the spectrum, the, the fullness of this. I understand harsh religiosity wants to make all judgment destructive, but we, we demonstrated that in the last lesson briefly, but we'll get into it deeper in the weeks ahead. Not all judgment is negative or destructive. Judgment is necessary before promotions and rewards can be awarded. So that's positive judgment. Remember, the Bible demonstrates judgment to be a spectrum, increasing from positive to negative and from mild self-judgment all the way to rewards and promotions or severe judgment and what we might even say damnation, eternal judgment. So look at our spectrum we kind of introduced in the first lesson. Positive judgment begins with self-judgment or even when you're a child or even on the job, your boss might come into your place and, and critique you or correct you. Our society is so weak, we can't handle a little bit of correction. 
And folks blow up and get cocky and puff up like a peacock or a blowfish when somebody says, do you mind to step over here? Who are you to tell me what to do? Uh, well, I'm the guy whose job is to tell people to step over here. So if you want to ride this roller coaster at Disney, you, you need to step over here. Otherwise, I'll have Goofy come arrest you. you know? <laughs> he may look like Goofy. That's the next seal under that Goofy outfit. <laughs> we have to, we got to be open and humble enough to be criticized, critiqued, corrected. Honestly, I don't know why we get mad when we get corrected, except that we're immature and prideful. You ought to be apologetic that you have to be corrected. We ought to be encouraging you not to be so hard on yourself rather than, I don't know why we get so hard on people that are doing their job. It's immaturity and it's our culture. We, we get it. It's our culture and everybody right now just wants to please everybody. And so we've got a whole, we're training a whole generation to be cowards. So positive judgment begins with self-judgment. Then once you're analyzed, critiqued, assayed, then you are corrected because a correction has to come. We get this in every spectrum of every area of life except for maybe the church and public schools because everybody gets a ribbon, everybody gets a trophy. After a correction, we go through some evaluation. After we've been evaluated and we've proven that we did right, we get approval. The approval is followed by promotion and rewards. I, you know, we could make those the same, but I'm just kind of parsing it out. Promotion and rewards. You don't get promotion and rewards just for having a pulse. And you don't get the gold medal for just showing up. You have to earn these things. And maybe that's where the church has gotten goofy because we don't earn salvation but apart from salvation, we earn everything else. And we're just so hung up on not earning salvation. It's works. We're not, no, but after Ephesians says we, we don't, we're not saved by works, it says, but we are created unto good works, and every man will be rewarded according to his good works. So we, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We do earn stuff in this kingdom. Promotion. There's a reason why many are called, but few are chosen. Amen. So then we have negative judgment. That begins the same way. Uh, we have judgment, then correction. But if you don't make the adjustment, after correction comes rebuke. The question is, why are you allergic to a rebuke? Why, why, why be allergic to a rebuke? Why do you get mad when you get rebuked? Why do you get mad at the rebuker? You ought to be broken hearted that you earned it. Amen. If your boss has to rebuke you, you ought to be apologetic. If your teacher has to rebuke you, you ought to be apologetic. If your professor has to rebuke you, you ought to be apologetic. Why do you have to be corrected so many times? It's just a good question. But we're dealing with a nation that's arrogant, egotistical, and it's my way or the highway. Because the question always follows up, well, who, who do you think you are? Well, if you're being rebuked, you're be, the person you're questioning is the one in charge. And they have been authorized to keep things in order. Who are you to require rejection so much and rebuking so much? Why can't you get with the program? The question might be asked, how long does it take to learn? I, mean, I think it's, most of what's required of us in every spectrum of life is pretty easy. How long does it take to get it? So I don't know. We see it. Our kids have been trained to talk down to teachers, but they probably learned that from parents. Amen. Somebody, one of our vets, military vets, was telling us there was some millennial in the military, and he, I think he was in basic training, he said, I, I just don't like this anymore. I want to go home. <laughs> that drill sergeant's really mean to me. Yeah, we need to send you home, because if you can't handle this, you're not fit for the rest of the military. 
And Dr. Barclay taught me years ago, he said, if your people can't handle correction from somebody that loves them and lives for them, they will never make it in the world. Amen. We're talking about judgment. And if we can't handle this judgment, then we get to be promoted on to worse judgment. You ought to just ask, Lord, let everybody in my life that loves me, let them just chew me to nothing so I can be toughened under real love. That way I can handle it. And I, honestly, parents don't do their kids much of a service by always bragging on them for everything because they never condition them how to handle rejection from a teacher or from a, uh, a coach or from a professor or on a job. And I think we see the issue at hand. I saw another twit, tweeter, twit, Twitter account tweet that said, homeschooling is so hard. Harder, they said, harder than I imagined. I had to tell my son he didn't make our, home, our baseball team. I love that. Sorry, son. You're going to the principal's office and you, you didn't make the cut. You didn't make the ball team. Rebuke. If you're rebuked and you don't get with the program, the next thing you get is resistance. It's how this thing works. A rebuke means God's hand is still on you for your favor. A rebuke means your boss's hand is still on you for your favor. I've learned in 25 years of serving God now, the last thing I want is silence. Even if the boss is chewing me out, he at least isn't put out with me. When your boss avoids you, when your professor avoids you, when your God avoids you, you're done. So maybe we were just brought up with this weird metric. We don't realize that a rebuke is still acceptance. Because that means they believe you're worth something to give their time to, even if it's a yell, a shout, a correction, an embarrassment. If you can't handle embarrassment on your job, you're going to have to grow up. And I know we're, work, we're worried about toxic workplaces right now, but come on. You know, because your boss was rude to you for being late for the third time, that's a toxic workplace. You ought to be fired for being late three times in a week. He has every right to chew you out. But we're just so thin-skinned. After resistance comes opposition. We looked at this last week. There's a big difference between resistance and opposition. After opposition, we have a biblical precedent for abandonment. You don't want God to abandon you. And the Bible demonstrates that. Now, I know because everybody goes, well, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Well, yes, that's if you're serving him. But you can walk out and away from him to where until you humble yourself. Amen. And then after abandonment, there's the when God gives you over, that's abandonment. Then you have the final wrath and vengeance. And we'll have lessons on those. One of God's names is Jehovah Vengeance. It's in the book of Isaiah. Jehovah Vengeance. It's not considered one of the seven redemptive names because there's no redemption in it. You can't publish a lot of books and make a lot of money on Jehovah Vengeance. Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Ra'ah, Jehovah Sidkenu. Those are warm and fuzzy. Rafi, Jehovah Jireh, but Jehovah Vengeance. I am Vengeance. But that's one of his names. That's one of his divine natures, and he changes not. Grace buys us a little bit more mercy with God, but the New Testament does talk about, for this reason, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. There is still wrath available to the New Testament saint. We'll get into that in future lessons, too. This lesson is all about self-judgment, because that's the warm, fuzzy front end that we ought to be training our kids how to do by the time they're two. The most famous of all judgment scriptures, everybody knows this one. Your pagan friends use it all the time. For the modern Westerner, any judgment 
in any form is verboten. That's German for forbidden. But I think we in American, we like to use verboten because it sounds worse. You know, anything in German sounds harsh. <laughs> verboten. Consequently, the modern Christian's favorite Bible verse is no longer John 3.16. It's Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. You're not supposed to judge. You Christians aren't supposed to be so judgy. Didn't Jesus say judge not? Well, we don't really want to have a Bible verse, do we? A Bible verse contest, a Bible lesson. I just love it how the pagans and the media and your professor wants to take you to task with Bible verses. So I'm sorry, professor. You stick with what I'm paying you to teach me. Uh, you got to tell you, I don't know, don't do it. You'll get in trouble. <laughs> Let me just show you how it works. You pay a tuition. Your tuition pays the professor to educate you in English grammar or British literature. I am here paying you too much money to learn about books I'm not interested in. So how about you stick with that? Stay off of social justice. Stay off intersectionality. Stay off of critical theory. And just teach me about a bunch of British old people that I'm not really interested in, but the university says I need to have this to be well-rounded. <laughs> so when your professor wants to have a Bible study, they give it to him, both barrels. Amen. Judge not that you be not judged. And it would seem from this single verse, Christians should never judge anyone or anything. That means eliminate all verbs and adverbs and adjectives from your vocabulary because those all require judgment to use accurately. That causes you to fail your British literature class. Ironically, nothing could be further from the truth. This verse actually begins a teaching on how we are to accurately judge ourselves and our brother. This passage teaches us how to judge each other, but it begins with self-judgment. So let's read the passage, Matthew 7, 2 through 5. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thy own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye? We would say a splinter or a two by four. Or wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. You hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then you shall see clearly to cast out the mote out of your brother's eye. Basically, the whole premise is don't worry about what's going on in somebody else's life till you clean up your life. And once you've cleaned up your life, you will see clearly to clean up everybody else's life. So by the time we conclude the little teaching, it's all about how to accurately help other people. The case in point is brother, though, not pagan. Your brother, your brother, your brother, your brother, your brother. But the whole point is judge yourself first and you'll be able to accurately see to judge one another. So he uses the point of a splinter or a speck in your own eye. And when you got something in your own eye, your eyes twitching at it, you're not going to be able to see accurately enough to pull a splinter out of somebody else. How about if what's in your eye is a two by four, a beam, a beam like what supports an old home. And he's being very sarcastic. Folks don't think Jesus was sarcastic. <laughs> when he talks about splinter versus two by fours, that's called sarcasm. <laughs> Amen. This passage points out the hypocrisy of any judgment if it is not preceded by self-judgment. That's why self-judgment begins the entire judgment spectrum as we're presenting here in this working model. The Lord asks three questions that actually serve as, a key, as keys to sound judgment. Number one, why are you looking at your brother's issue but fail to consider yourself first? 
Self, it comes back to self-judgment, 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 self-judgment. Number two, why worry about the splinter in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Why are you so concerned about that when you got your own issues? So work on yourself. Second question brings you back to self-judgment. Third question, how can you correct sin in a brother when your sin interferes with your own vision? Third question brings you right back to self-judgment. So I think we see the point over and over again. We evaluate ourselves. We examine ourselves. But in conclusion to the Lord's teaching here, once you have examined yourself and removed sin from your own face and eye and soul, you are better qualified and able to see what's going on in other people. Plus, you'll probably be a little bit more compassionate and merciful, assuming the people want the help that you're extending to them. You can tell real quickly who does and doesn't when you point out something to them. And, well, who do you think you are? You're not supposed to judge. Oh, here we go again. We just cycled the do loop of idiocy. <sighs> right. I'm not supposed to judge, but I just judged myself. Is that wrong judgment? Look, I can see you have a speck. I can help you. I just pulled a whole log out of my face. You got it easy compared to me. Amen. We're dealing with a culture today that's so allergic to criticism, critique, correction, instruction. God, have mercy if you rebuke. And now all of our culture, we're not just wearing face masks everywhere. We're wearing kitty gloves, big Mickey Mouse gloves. And you cannot make soldiers of the cross with Mickey Mouse gloves. And if you have to be handled with Mickey Mouse gloves, you will never be a soldier of the cross. Amen. What if our, what if our military, what if basic training was like kindergarten? It, it's snack time. Gather around, children. Gather around. It's nap time. Who needs a nap? Who needs a potty break? There's a reason why they're greeted with a big shaved man who says, you gaggle of maggots, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And reality hits those 19-year-old kids like a sack of bricks. And they think, what have I? I can't break the contract, even though mommy said she would come and get me. <laughs> you just call mommy. Mommy will be there. <laughs> Synopsis, judge yourself first and you will be able to more accurately judge and help your friend or brother. All sound Christian judgment must begin with self-judgment. So in reality, the only verse so frequently used to diffuse any form of critique or righteous interrogation is actually the opening statement for a larger teaching on how to more accurately judge. That famous verse is taken out of context all alone so that perverts can stay perverted, fornicators can stay filthy, brats can stay bratty, what have you. And then Jesus goes on to say, cast not your pearls before a swine. <laughs> so you have to know what pearls are. That takes judgment. And you have to know what piggies are. That takes judgment. And then you have to judge your action. And don't take that which is holy. Give it to dogs. So now Jesus is calling human beings pigs and dogs. And you think, I'm rough? <laughs> I mean, you guys, you guys have your feelings hurt. You just, you just call so many names. I'm trying to be like my Savior. I haven't used, you called you guys pigs and dogs and brood of vipers and snakes and scorpions and oh, hypocrites, oh, ye, warring, woe, woe, ye. I don't do that. I call you stupid. I call... <laughs> I might call you chubby, but I don't call you pigs and dogs. Here's the deal. You don't know how much worse a criticism that is to a Jew to be called a pig. 
or a dog. A dog is one of the worst epithets in the whole Old Testament. He said, beware the dogs. And pigs were wholly unclean, completely. So for God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, to call the Jews pigs and dogs, that's worse than insulting your mama. And this is our holy Lord Jesus. He didn't wear a pink robe hugging everybody everywhere he went. He was wearing people out, using sarcasm. No. Yeah. You being sarcastic, Pastor? No. Are you being stupid? Yes. Self-judgment. As covered previously, all judgment must begin with self-judgment. We're going to drill that in you over and over again because you got to be critical of yourself. And when you get to be too critical, we'll come back and say, quit being so critical because this is all about a balancing act. Amen. God has given every human being a built-in self-governor called a conscience. And you'll have to forgive me if there's typos. We haven't edited these at all. I'm working these out week by week. We've all been given a built-in self-governor called a conscience. The conscience is trained by parents, culture, and discipleship. We can't completely trust our conscience, but it is a pretty good ballparker. Kind of gets us in the general ballpark. And so uh, even the pagans know I shouldn't fornicate. Even the pagans know I shouldn't commit adultery. Even the pagans know I shouldn't steal or lie. Because that's God says here in Romans 2, it's built in them just by nature. And so this is where we begin to self-judge ourselves, to feel naughty for things, when, especially when we're little children. This, this is also why, as a parent, you shouldn't tell your children it's okay when it's not okay because you'll override their conscience. Now, you shouldn't let them get swallowed up with too much sorrow or grief. You need to teach them how to repent and to receive forgiveness and restoration. But when, when, um, when we have our children repent to folks for disobeying or being rude, we don't let the adults say, it's okay. We've corrected many of you in here over the years. Please don't tell them it's okay. It's not okay. If I'm going to have to go spank them, it's not okay. Just tell them, I forgive you and I love you. Because it's our, na- ta- our nature and our tendency when a child's in trouble to say, it's okay. It's not okay. It's sin. They just violated a Ten Commandment. Thankfully, it was just lying and stealing and not adultery at four years old or idolatry. But it's not okay. So please don't say that it's okay. We don't want to sear their conscience or just mute the thing. We want them to know this was naughty and that they ought to feel guilty for lying or stealing or sneaking. And so we have this conscience, and that helps us with self government and self judgment. Romans 2 in the New Living Translation says, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they distinctively, or excuse me, instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So even your conscience will say that's wrong or that's acceptable. King James says either accusing or uh, excusing. That's the job of our conscience. It works automatically. It doesn't even require a sit-down introspection. You just know, that wasn't true. I shouldn't have said that. I, then you start to roll and reel with yourself and judge yourself. Should I call them and make that right? That wasn't. See, now you're into self-judgment because your conscience just went, uh-uh. And now, now you start to wrestle with this thing. Just go make it right. Whatever it takes, just go make it right to keep your conscience just ever so soft. Because... There is a self-judgment we'll get into here in a moment that takes work on your part, but the conscience just automatically triggers. It's almost like a limiter. It just, man, what, what was that? I did something. 
If you always override it or excuse it or say, well, I don't, that's a pagan coworker. I shouldn't have to repent to them. You're going to start to callous your conscience and you'll ruin your self-judgment. Anybody you sin against or mislead, you owe an apology to. And do that to keep your heart sensitive. Any, anytime you lash out or have ego or attitude, you need to go back and make that thing right. Don't override your conscience. Our conscience is the first line of defense against catastrophic judgment. And here's why this is kind of misleading. Catastrophic judgment doesn't come the first time you override your conscience. But any man facing the electric chair today, and I am all for capital punishment. I'm all for hanging them, electrocuting them, lethal injecting them, or even the guillotine, though that's a little bloody. It's probably the most painless form of execution because it's just gone like that, or even the firing squad, which is still legal. I'm all for all of that. Anybody facing the firing squad or the guillotine started off violating their conscience. And it didn't come overnight, but how else are you 28 years old on death row? You violated what was in you by the divine instinct of God, and then what even a pagan mama will say, don't do that, that's not proper. She began to violate it little by little, and now you're up facing capital crimes that are worthy of the death sentence, unless you live in a democratic state, like California or New York. <laughs> Amen. And if some of you, you don't agree with that, I don't remember Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for capital offenses ever bellyaching. He said, it must be so. Amen. Our conscience must, conscience must continually be programmed and trained by the Word of God. Otherwise, our conscience can become calloused, seared, or even cold. Our conscience judges our every action and either accuses the behavior or excuses it. And this is why we don't just leave our conscience the same. We're constantly training it, developing it, programming it with the Word of God. Right now, with this whole corona thing, we're being trained by our society to maintain six feet. And some folks have demonstrated to God, it may be a form of divine judgment, how quickly you can learn and get with the program. Now, what bugs me, and I'm not against social distancing, I know a lot of this is to alleviate the fear. And I don't deny the existence of corona or COVID-19 or that it's really taken a toll on some big cities. But... The fact that people have learned to be discipled in two months how to maintain six feet of social distancing, wear masks, and, and correct people publicly, but I pastor folks for 13 years and can't get some of them to do stuff, you are indicted of your own sinful, carnal, I don't, I don't even have words to communicate it. How could our society disciple you in two, two months to maintain social distance and stand off from people and I've harped for 13 years on some things, and some of you just don't even get it. Fear is a tremendous discipler. But see, fear is an emotion that causes you to open your heart up to whatever I must do to live, I'll do. But how come the love of God and the fear of eternal damnation and the fear of failing your God doesn't cause your heart to open up and say, whatever I must do, I will do? Our nation is indicating to Jesus Christ they're still open for discipleship. Except we've been made a disciple of Fauci in the CDC. And some of us have been in church 60 years and we still barely smell of Christ. 
Amen. <laughs> Our nation gives you the stink eye if you don't wear a mask and stay six feet behind people. And there's, that's not judgy. And if we look at sexual deviants, perverts, or look down our nose at somebody who's just full of the devil, we're called judgy. Amazing how things turn, and yet the, the true nature of people's hearts is exposed. A man after God's heart. David was a man after God's own heart. His hunger to please God and to know God caused the favor and promotion of the Lord to rest upon him, probably unlike anybody in the whole Old Testament. I think we could safely argue that. David practiced self-judgment. This is one of the things that made him a man after God's own heart. Psalm 26 says, Judge me, O Lord. I try to teach you as a congregation to pray that. Judge me, O Lord. Pray it every day. <laughs> Let judgment come in little installments. Be like layaway at Christmas time. Just a little bit here and there along the way will save you so much. Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try me. Try my reins, my emotions, and try my heart. You have four words there talking about judgment, and he's invoking God's judgment upon him. But if we, that's a psalm that starts off with judgment. All of our psalms talk about how I want to climb up in Jesus' lap and snuggle in his beard and drink from the cup in his hand, a bunch of weird juju stuff. David's psalms talk about judge me. Why can't we write a song about judge me, O God, judge me, try me, test me, prove me, I'm faithful to you. Because our nation is so allergic to any kind of criticism. We want unmerited trophies in heaven. We want participation trophies in heaven, and you're not going to get any. You want, a, you want a trophy for showing up. That doesn't happen. David began this song of worship by invoking the judgment of God upon himself. What a way to start a worship service. If we started singing songs like that, I wonder how much sin would be exposed in the sermon. We might commission Caleb or Kylie, go write us a worship song about judgment. Make it upbeat. <laughs> but may the refrain be about judge me, O God. Test me, prove me, search me, O Lord. The old black Pentecostal song was about search me, Lord. Donnie McClurkin did an awesome version of it. Search me. How come the new church doesn't, the modern church doesn't want to sing songs like that? Maybe they know they're perverts. You start singing uh, five, eight minutes of judge me, Lord, I think the sermon will change because God will answer that prayer real quick. <laughs> In fact, he doesn't just invoke judgment once. He actually invokes it four times with four different words. Judge, examine, prove, and try. This is a wonderful example of and biblical pattern for self-judgment. Remember, this is a man after God's own heart. How much more should we examine ourselves when somebody else has called us on the carpet on something? If somebody, let's say if I go up to Caleb, not even as a pastor, just as a friend, say, Caleb, you're kind of arrogant, man. This just seemed kind of prideful. He ought to take that right back to God in prayer. Lord, judge me. My friend Chris said I was kind of cocky. Is there anything to that? Instead, we say he's just, a, he's just a judger. He's just a hater. Nobody wants to be a hater. We're supposed to love. We're supposed to love our neighbors. Isn't that the mantra right now? We're supposed to love our neighbors, love our neighbors. You don't have a clue what biblical love looks like. Does love let your children drink Drano? 
Will love not come across a sofa and a granite countertop screaming at a kid at the top of his lungs, don't drink that, as you come across like the Dukes of Hazard and smack that Drano out of the two-year-old's mouth and knock the kid backwards on the recoil. Busted lip, blood everywhere, but you saved the kid's life. Or modern seeker love. Oh, you know, who am I to judge? Drano's not for me, but who am I to say it isn't for you? Huh. Sometimes love is a little messy, but it saves souls. I do want a song on judgment. You guys, you songwriters, you give me something. Judgy. We'll call it, there's a, a Delirious had a song called The Happy Song. Give me, we'll call it The Judgy Song. I think that sounds, we need that. To so just get us used to judgment. <laughs> he says, Lord, judge me. I think that's a wonderful way to begin a prayer. Lord, judge me. What a, are we okay, Lord? Lord, have I pleased you today? Maybe at the end of the day, before you go to bed, Lord, judge me. How was this day today, Lord? Uh, military, they call it debriefing. Uh, usually in my first couple years of pastoring, I'd get done with every service, go home and meditate with the Lord and say, Lord, how did that service go? Did that please you? We really had to move with the Holy Ghost. Did I hit every checkpoint? Did I miss anything? Did we get too weird? Did we get weird at all? Was that out of order? Should I have corrected that? Just judge me, Lord. How did I handle that service tonight? Because I don't want to be a dingling and I don't want to be a crazy matic. I want to be precise. And, and then don't be afraid if you were wrong. Because if you didn't know it, you're already wrong somewhere. And the only thing worse than being wrong is being wronger any longer than you need to be. <laughs> He said, Lord, examine me. That means scrutinize me. Can you handle scrutiny? Successful people can. Go nowhere people cannot. And David invited God's scrutiny. And don't you know, if God's going to scrutinize you, it's going to be severe. Lord, prove me. That is test, assay, put to the proof. Judge me like metallurgy. Heat me up. See what I'm made out of. Am I gold or am I just fool's gold? Am I gold or am I just shiny copper? And then, Lord, try me, smelt me, refine me, refine my emotions in my heart. Smelt, that means a lot of heat until you liquefy metal. That's what a smelter does. This isn't just a furnace. It's a smelting furnace. And you can imagine precious gold, precious metals take a lot of heat to smelt. So you're invoking heat upon your life. And we've been taught for the last 30 years, God wants it to be so easy on you. <laughs> and it's not good. David continues to Psalm 26 by confidently reminding the Lord that he would, in fact, be found innocently walking in God's truth and fleeing evil. If you go study the rest of the psalm, you'll see, Lord, judge me, but you're going to find my hands are clean. My way is pure. I haven't fellowship with wicked people. I haven't gone after idols or sin. I'm pure, Lord. Confidence allows you to call on God's judgment all the time. Confidence isn't arrogance, because that would be pride. Confidence is knowing I've served God. I talked to him this morning. We were still good, and we're still good today, because I haven't done anything to mess that thing up. David did not fear the judgment of God. They got a couple of other Psalms there that you can go look at where he invoked the judgment of God upon himself. Look at Psalm 139. Search me, 
O God. This is the famous old Pentecostal song. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of uh, everlasting. You can't walk in the way everlasting and be full of wickedness at the same time. So to get on the right path, you've got to leave things behind. That's going to include friendships. It's going to include in, insecurity, shame, condemnation, habits. You've got to ask the Lord to reveal any wicked way, any wicked demeanor, any wicked habit. And if you already know what some of those are, you ought to be doing something about them every day. Yeah, otherwise, he's not going to talk to you about anything current. You've got to finish the last couple of things he spoke to you about. And if you don't do anything about them, they will only get worse. Leaving them alone does not make them go away. Leaving them, they're like mold. They only get worse with time. There were other times when David was not as sure about his integrity as at uh, times. This psalm reveals such an instance. There will also be times when we're unsure of our behavior, motives, or decisions. In those situations, it is wise to ask God to search us and reveal any wicked thing he may find. This is self-judgment, and it is also taught in the New Testament. Judgment is in the New Testament. And I don't have time to go into it right now, but honestly, there's more judgment spoken of in First and Second Corinthians than the other epistles, but that shouldn't surprise us because the Corinthian church was a very carnal, lascivious over, they were an overeating church, as the, as the Corinthian epistle declares. They were sexually hyped up. So there's a lot more judgment spoken of in those epistles than the others. But that's what you have to do when you're dirty. Look at self-judgment and communion. First Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul taught about the significance and sacredness of communion. So we've got to build a little bit of a track record here, and I've got to move quick. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. What an accusation right out of the bat. Hey, Corinthian church, I just want to be honest with you. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. So they're having church services, what we would call a potluck. This is what's called a love feast in first century Palestine in the first century church. They would have a love feast, which was like a, a, a church family dinner that was symbolic of the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper, because it's a supper. And then they would honor communion. We have kind of just, well, the Baptist made it a potluck Wednesday night dinner and then communion. That's where the potluck kind of comes from. This was a lot more a sacred ordeal, not to diminish potlucks, because we have our own around here. Christians fellowship around food. <laughs> Amen. It isn't just the bread of life we enjoy. It's, it's all the other bread. <laughs> so he says, when you come together, you guys have brought your own meals it's going to be a giant kind of potluck, and you're not really interested in honoring the Lord because some of you eat in a hurry, and the others of you, you just get drunk on the wine people brought. What a service. Gluttons and drunkards. And this is in a spirit-filled church that has the gifts of the Spirit. And he said, what? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? And I would ask the modern church with their coffee bars and their hot dog stands and their nacho bars and their breakfast bars, don't you have your own homes? For eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. <laughs> no participation trophy for you. You want praise? You don't deserve it. The New Testament church thinks I ought to act like a middle school teacher and just praise you for showing up. I praise you not for showing up. I'll let you know when you're praiseworthy. 
<laughs> when you line up with this Bible and how we do things, then I'll say, good job. Well done. Amen. Otherwise, I'm just lying to you. The reason for Paul's teaching on communion stems from the Corinthian church's disingenuous heart and attitudes towards the sacred rite. The first century church's communion was more like what we would call a potluck dinner, also called a feast of charity in Jude 12. This was a full meal designed to remember the Lord's Last Supper. Unfortunately, the Corinthian believers turned this sacred meal into a, uh, to quote Paul, a gluttonous, drunken, poor, shaming disgrace. That's your first Sunday of the month service. <laughs> Something Paul refused to praise. It literally left him speechless. He said, should I praise you? He's like, I don't even know what to say to this. Paul had to reteach communion to the Corinthian church. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and again, pardon any of my typos, and gave thanks to God for it. He then broke it, broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And you can see Paul recalibrating the Corinthian perspective on this last supper or this love feast. It's not to pig out, eat your, your sister in Christ's famous casserole and drink more wine than you brought and become a drunk. It's not the purpose of this. It's to show the Lord's death. And here they were thriving in life. And it may be one of the reasons why modern churches and somehow over the last 2,000 years we've dropped the love feast and we make it a lot more ritualistic in communion so we avoid the temptation of disintegrating into some kind of debaucherous food orgy with gluttony and drinking. There's no, no, not a problem with a Thanksgiving dinner or cookouts and all that, but we're not making that sacred. When you put a human being in front of a potluck smorgasbord, it's hard to be sacred because somebody's got an appetite problem and their idol is sitting there covered in gravy. <laughs> and you just excited idolatry in the name of Jesus. So that's why you get a little bit of grape juice and a little bit of really not good tasting dry bread. <laughs> Paul reintroduced the entire premise and importance of the Corinthian church and pastor in this section of his epistle. Simply put, communion is practiced to announce the Lord's death until he returns again. Paul continued his passage with warnings and consequences. And this is where we get one of our famous passages. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, in a hurry, not waiting on the church or by getting drunk on the wine, sorry Catholics, I was at an Episcopal, well, not just Catholics, but an Episcopal. Generally speaking, from my connections, many priests are alcoholics. We, we were at a, a, an Episcopal service, and there was all this wine left in the cup, and the priest, by their rules, has to chug it. Now, wine is about 11 to 12 and a half, 13. Well, you get 13 Chardonnay. You get high percentage of alcohols. You chug 14, 18, 20 ounces of wine because you can't recycle it or you don't have a special trough they pour it into. You create a whole priesthood of alcoholics in the name of Jesus. Yeah. 
Anybody doing this is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself, Paul said, before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat this bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Paul said in the Corinthian church, your congregation is smaller than it should be because you guys refuse to examine your motives with the communion supper. That's sobering. That's why we teach it and self-examination and making sure we discern the Lord's body. Evidently, self-judgment is so important it must be practiced even in communion. For the Corinthian self-judgment before their weekly or monthly love feast would have exposed the, the improper motives of selfishness, gluttony, drunkenness, and pride. Without self-judgment, weakness, sickness, and premature death were, and they still are the result or are the resultant. 1 Corinthians 11.31, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Once again, we judge ourselves so we can avoid judgment. You're going to be judged one way or another. That's why you constantly look down at the speedometer so that the police officer doesn't have to judge you. And then you go contest it and you stand before a judge and he judges you. If you would just constantly check your speedometer, you could avoid a lot of judgment. Like the old adage, a stitch in time saves nine. If you don't know what that means, it took me 40 years of life to figure out what that meant. You have a hole in your britches. One little stitch sewing that hole up will prevent you from having to rip it or rip it on accident and now needs nine stitches. At least that's my interpretation of the adage. I may be totally wrong, but that makes sense to me. I said it from the pulpit It's so. <laughs> Daily self-judgment works wonders in preventing any greater calamitous judgment from taking place. Paul's promise to the carnal Corinthian church was judge yourself and you can avoid judgment. That's why we're focusing on this first. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. The problem is if we don't judge ourselves and catch any underlying attitude or motive, we can rest assured that God will faithfully step in and chasten us. Do you know why services hit you so hard when they do? Because you weren't walking with God judging yourself. But if you stay current with God, you won't be rebuked. I have to admit, not that I'm perfect. It's been a long time since any church service has convicted me. But if you pray every day, Lord, show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm lazy. Help me work on it. There's nothing really left to majorly adjust. But when folks say, man, that service was so hard, and everybody else is saying, that was awesome. I had so much fun. Man, half the church is laughing, and you're the one crying. Who's the lazy Christian now? If you will judge yourself, the services won't rake you over the coals. I've learned that the services only sand those that are rough. They only snag where the nail is sticking up. Amen. How come you're convicted of the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again? Pastor, your job is to teach. What in the world... Do you think I do? <laughs> I might add, and your job is to learn. <laughs> However, should we fail, God will step in and chasten us. This too is a form of judgment that saves us from greater levels of divine judgment. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Thank God for conviction in a church service. 
Thank God from a rebuke in a dream or a rebuke in a prophecy or a rebuke. Even a harsh rebuke from a boss who's a pagan can save your life. I got to hurry up. I'm way over. Self-judgment and faith. Besides communion, Paul called the Corinthian believers to self-judgment in the matter of their basic faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine or assay yourselves. Assay is a metallurgical term where you prove what the purity of a metal is. Whether you be in the faith. So test yourself. How much faith is in you and how much are you really in the faith? Are you around people that are polluting your faith? Are you around people causing you to question your doctrines? And get away from that. Get away from anything that, 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 that causes your faith to become impure. Quit reading that junk. Quit fellowshipping with those people because they will slowly cut you to where your faith is nothing. I, I don't have, to, well, when I worked at the zinc mine, the zinc mine I worked at, our zinc was so pure, it would be sold to be cut with zinc coming out of Australia, which wasn't as high a, a purity or as high a, a ore grade. So Australia's zinc, which was a similar body of ore to ours, was not high enough, so they'd mix ours in with it to help the smelter in the refinery. But you can also do it in the other direction. You can bring in filth to your faith and begin to cut your purity and begin to cut your ore grade and begin to cut your fruit and begin to cut. Eliminate all those sources of compromise in your life and be pure. Purge out the old leaven and be a new lump. Prove found to be found genuine after examination. Prove your own selves. There's a word for judgment. Know you not that your own selves, how Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates, or that is castaways. One of the very last things Paul wrote to the Corinthian church was another exhortation to self-examine or self-judge. This time it was in regard to being uh, in the Christian faith. This kind of statement has many implications. Number one, you can know that you're saved. So if you, I just don't know if I'm saved or not. Paul said, prove it, which means you can. You can know that you're saved. Number two, you can determine this through simple metallurgical self-examination. How pure is your Christian obedience? Do you come to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you fornicate? Do you drink? Are you drunk? Do you love tattooing yourself? Do you love watching porn? Are you just a slander? These are proofs that you may not really be a saint. It's time to examine yourself. Maybe you're just really backslid. Either way, get away from it. Come out from among them. Number three, we can and must prove ourselves. If, uh, you should not be offended if somebody says, I can't see fruit in your life. The Bible commands you to prove yourself. Do you get offended when the police officer asks to see your license and registration? He has every right to. He wants you to prove yourself. License, registration. If you have a carry conceal, he wants to see that license. If he sees the license, he'll want to know, do you have a weapon on you? Why are we afraid of proving? Except we're allergic to judgment. It, we should not be offended with a person who can't see Christ in us. We should be offended at ourselves. If they're looking for fruit and you don't have any, it's not their fault. You don't have any. It's your fault. So that's where you take the scrutiny to heart, take it to Christ, and find evidence. Find help. In review, because I'm way over. Self-examination allows us to improve our own life so we can help others. Self-examination allows us to become a man or woman after God's own heart, like David. Self-examination allows us to avoid weakness, sickness, and premature death. That's a good reason to self-judge. Self-examination allows us to avoid worse judgments than number three. 
I don't know what's worse than sickness, death, and weakness, but there are some out there. And number five, self-examination allows us to prove that we are true Christians and dwelt by Jesus Christ. So let us get to judging ourselves. Amen. Father, we thank you for this lesson. Bless those that listen to it in the future on Pod School, And may folks develop an affinity for judgment and not an aversion. We love you, Lord, and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.